Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Lawrence Watson. Lawrence is a data scientist at Carbon Tracker. Lawrence, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, Sam. Great to be on the show. Uh, it is great to have you on the show. Let's get started by exploring a bit of your background. You started out in physics, made your way over to climate change policy, and now you're working in data science in that field. Tell us a little bit more about that path for you. Sure. So when I was when I was small, I always wanted to be a physicist. I, I just love to ask why and to get down to the the root of the question. And when you got to the the fundamental of the laws of the universe, I thought that was that was far enough. Um, but when I finished my degree, uh, I really wanted to to have a positive impact or to address some of the issues that needed addressing in the world. So I decided to try and work on clean energy and energy policy. I worked with a think tank that campaigned to reform the European carbon markets, and that was when I got started into into programming. Um, they had a, a Python and Django uh, stack, in fact, and I sort of took over looking after their database, scraping the European Commission's website where they released all of the data about who was buying and selling these uh, these uh, emissions permits. Um, and then went from there, really, and uh, I've been at Carbon Tracker almost two years uh, trying to convince the financial markets about climate risk. When you say trying to convince the financial markets about climate risk, what does that entail? Sure. So we, um, Carbon Tracker, popularized this idea of a, a carbon bubble, that uh, if the, the valuations of, of fossil fuel companies are to some extent based on the amount of fossil fuels they're going to sell in the future, um, if they're wrong in their predictions and those those valuations are in fact going to be constrained by by climate change, either by economic factors or by governments saying, you know, you're not going to be allowed to continue in this way, that has a financial implication. So it's all been about quantifying the extent uh, to which they're going to face those risks. Practically, what does that mean? What is the carbon tracker uh, you know, product or service that, uh, that you know, works on this quantification? So we've done a lot of work on uh, on on oil and gas, and then I've been working on on coal power. Um, for oil and gas, we, we we put all the oil projects on a on a cost curve. Um, so we say how how much does it cost for company X in this region to produce a barrel of oil, and then we say how much oil could we burn in a, a climate compatible scenario, and uh, the projects that are that are above the line. Uh, don't make it in. And so we say, you know, some companies uh, are better positioned for this energy transition in a climate compatible way and some aren't. And then we started doing the same for for coal power, saying if there's going to be a coal power phase out in a given country, how should that be done? If it's done on a least cost basis, which company has the highest cost units and should therefore uh, be closed down first? Uh, or uh, and that uh, that is about the market as well because we're I'm I'm saying uh, close down but it may be that the market sends a signal such that the coal plant is no longer economically viable and that that phase out would happen in the same way. And so, who are the users of this intelligence? Is it uh, the policymaker or the companies themselves? Uh, we think uh, we have some appeal to a lot of different audiences, definitely policymakers, because they need to be aware of these these forces that are going on in the energy transition and make sure the policies uh, are there to support it. Um, but in investors, certainly, because we think there's a lot of shareholder value at risk um, 
here for companies that aren't uh, aren't prepared for the changes that are happening. We've seen that a lot in, in Europe in the utilities sector where European utilities lost a lot of money because they didn't see renewables coming, uh, essentially. Um, but also to campaigners uh, and, and journalists as well. And so where does data science fit into all of this? So we take a lot of different databases um, from, from all sorts of different sources and, and try and join them up. Um, but the project that we've, we've done more recently was really about looking at places where the databases weren't so good, uh, where it was very hard to get, um, to get publicly available data about the, the kinds of operations that we're trying to find out about. So trying to find coal production data, trying to find out about how uh, plants in India have r- running their pollution technologies, uh, all, all of which has impacts on on how much they cost to run and the profitability of the companies. So it's it's about joining up different data sources, um, making them talk to each other, and about filling in the gaps um, where we don't have good data. So walk us through the process. How did you go about um, pulling together all of these data sources? Mm. So. Uh, Firstly, I should well. I have to, to give thanks to, to all of the all of the data providers all around the world doing a, a huge amount of, of good work in terms of making. It, I mean, we, we we buy a lot of data sets, but there are also some really good, freely available public data sets, including uh, Coal Swarm, which have the um, global, which have a global database about operating coal plants, um, which I know is is a lot of work and really a testament as well to, to open source because they have a, a website where uh, a wiki site where people can upload information. So they aggregate that and do a lot of work themselves to put it all together. Of course, the, the, there's no uh, uniform naming uh, as, as, as is often the case. So we have to do a lot of sort of string matching and, and pattern matching in order to sync up where we think these projects uh, are and uh, and bring together these different different uh, qualities that we're looking for basically in terms of capacity in terms of ownership um, and these things are, are often some some organization may be really interested in what is there but a different organization may be really interested in, in who owns it and how that ownership structure has changed over time so gluing those things together uh, and in terms of how we do it um because uh, Carbon Tracker has a lot of ex-city analysts, so we do uh, a lot of analysis in Excel. Uh, and so my sort of first task in the beginning was to interface with a lot of existing um, Excel databases and put them into SQL, um, which is usually what I would use. Um, and then just a lot of string matching. <laughs> They're not terribly exciting at the, at, the, at the base layer, but essential for everything we did on top. Okay, and then you're doing some work with satellite imagery as well is that right yeah yeah so so why don't i just jump in and, t- and, t- and tell you a little bit about that that project okay. um, and so what we wanted to find out was the capacity factor of coal plants uh, and the capacity factor is, is simply how much of the time what proportion of the time they're running uh compared to their maximum theoretical maximum output and that's a key part of the financial uh, evaluation of any plant because the, 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 the profits that they can make um, are a, a balance between the revenues they can earn when they run and the, the, op, the ongoing costs and the fixed costs that they have to pay every year in terms of maintenance costs, in terms of lifetime extensions um, and other fixed costs. So working out how often these things are running is, is, is a really important part of our, of our modeling. Um, now, for various parts of the world, um, that data is, is public, though sometimes it's a few years out of date. So in the US and in Europe, 
um, you, can, you can find that data through the EPA uh, and in Europe through, um, uh, it's called an NSOE, which is about electricity transparency. Um, but the, the data is out there. But for other parts of the world, um, particularly sort of Southeast Asia and across Asia, um, that data was not available. Or if it is available, it's about four years out of date. Um, so we wanted to investigate whether we could use remote monitoring, that is satellite imagery, um, to, to answer that question and work out how often these plants are running. And we thought we had a good shot at it because uh, at the same time, um, the proliferation of uh, of this of of competitors in the in the satellite imagery space and the availability of the data has just increased hugely in the last few years. Uh, partly that's to do with these nanosats and cubesats, which are very small, um, but still give uh, give reasonable quality outputs. And um, some companies like uh, Planet who we worked with um, has put up a sort of over 100 of these, I think 150 now of these, these CubeSats. And I know a lot of other uh, providers are, are, think you, are doing the same or certainly thinking of if they're not already. The goal then is to look at the, uh, look at areas where you've got known uh, coal production facilities and try to predict their, uh, their output, their capacity uh, at any given point in time and it sounds like one of the uh things you're doing is you've got the you've got some known facilities and their output via the, the NSOE and EPA and you're using mm-hmm. these as labels to uh, exactly. then train a model exactly that was that was our starting point that we would have all this labeled data and thus we would have a, a strong base to to do some proper supervised learning um and and so we we without too much further scoping we then set off to to try and do that <laughs> and possibly as as with all things perhaps we should have spent longer scoping out or thinking about other other kinds of solutions but um <laughs> hey we we we, do, we just dove straight in and uh you know and and I started writing uh, scripts to interface with um these satellite providers APIs where you can uh, query for images and things so um the first step was to create uh, GeoJSON objects specifying the the areas. It's called areas of interest or AOIs, uh, what's referred to by these satellite image providers. So we had to make um, shape files or GeoJSON files for each one of these coal plants that we wanted to get the data of. And we, I just drew a, a, a square, uh, a sort of 1.5 kilometer squared size shape file around each plant. Um, and sent that off to the to the um, image providers API and said, uh, "Give me all the images you have in the last two years that meets uh, a threshold of cloud cover of say less than ten percent cloud cover, and uh, let me and let me download it." Uh, and that was uh, amazing in the first instance because that sort of capability it, again is very new because usually or what has historically been the case was if you want to work with satellite data you get image tiles and the tiles are like the the, the photograph the image that the, the satellite sensor takes and it covers a, a large area and it's a big file um, so if i wanted to do that historically i would have had to download so terabytes of data and uh, you know, and then sort of clip it myself. Thankfully, I didn't have to do that. I could create um, uh, a labelled uh, s- small, well, set of small images where images were a few hundred kilobytes each or something because they had been pre-clipped uh, out. I think uh, Digital Globe call these image chips, um, 
And uh, so reasonably quickly, um, we had a, a, a data set of around sort of 80,000 images for the US and the EU um, labeled. So so we, so we were sort of ready to go relatively quickly. Though there were some challenges in there in terms of um, making sure that the time zones were right for the for the labels and the satellite images and syncing that up correctly. Um, that that was a, a minor headache. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, another challenge that we we saw straight away was that the um, we didn't have any sort of balance in terms of the the, the training classes. If we were going to look at uh, whether plants were running very hard or they're running somewhat or, or they were off, or if we, if we were just, as we ended up just looking at whether plants were on or off, um, they, it was a very imbalanced classes. And part of that is because uh, satellites take images in the daytime um, when it, and it, it plants uh, also happen to run more in the, in the daytime. So there's no images at night when plants are running less and more likely to be off. So we had very imbalanced class training classes straight away that we had to, to deal with with them, which we, which we counted just by sampling the, uh, the, the imbalanced class multiple times and then uh, doing lots of um, manipulations to it. Uh, and that worked out, it worked out okay, but not fantastic, I would say. And so that was one limitation that we, that we saw straight away. And were you primarily looking at uh, this binary status, uh, whether the plant was on or off, as opposed to trying to measure the, uh, the plume area and try to determine the, the output in some way? Initially, we absolutely wanted to be hoped. We had high hopes that our that our model would just spit out um, a reasonable output number for each plant, and that, that had to be calibrated on the the actual capacity, the size of each plant, um, which we had. We we had that information, uh, but unfortunately, so we tried to tried to just do a make a regressor. Um, but it it didn't turn out terribly well. The results it gave didn't seem to reflect reality particularly and part of that we we found uh, by doing a lot of doing some manual analysis was just looking at the the classification that it was doing in terms of the the actual pixels that it was counting up um, and this is where perhaps a, an early weakness that that that, that um, was I was I think I made a decision early on to take visual um, images from the the API, uh, which is uh, author rectified sort of RGB images, um, because visual images are what's needed, of course, to do um, to do an image processing machine learning technique. Um, what's also available is, is 13 band um, analytic images, which contain a lot lot other a lot more information. Um, and we ended up using that to do the the counting up rather than doing a, a visual classifier because any kind of very light pixels, which could have been to do with uh, reflectivity of, of metal, uh, other kinds of uh, sort of smoke plumes and things coming off the ground, um, that was all getting counted up and uh, and sort of adding to the to the plant's output, which 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 wasn't uh, a good reflection of what was actually going on. So so fairly quickly, we we decided that we weren't going to be able to uh, get the the output using this method. And so we ended up doing uh, on Google Earth Engine, we we made uh, an algorithm that would count up the pixels in each image and just say. Uh, uh, using the analytical images because it could do a, a spectral linear mixing of the 
of the information in those analytic uh, image chips. Um, and that gave us uh, a, a better estimate of an instantaneous output. Um, so our, our idea then was to combine these these two different techniques to say, here's when we think the plants are off and here's what we think is an average of the plants output over that given time. Um, and by combining them, we got to a, a, a reasonable a reasonable result in the end. You mentioned earlier that uh, a lot of your challenges could be traced back to kind of the way you scope the problem or problem definition. Uh, and, and this is one example of where you needed to to pivot uh, in in the way you approach the problem. Are there others that um, that we can talk through? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, one one thing that uh, that became clear to us over time as we got more into the problem was we started out really wanting to understand China and what's happening in China. And of course, from a, a climate change perspective, you know, China is a, a huge global emitter uh, and it has a huge amount of, of coal capacity. It has sort of 1100 gigawatts of coal capacity. So from a climate perspective, it's very important to know what's going on. And historically, the, the data has been very poor and China has been criticized for uh, publishing statistics that perhaps don't really reflect what's going on and that, that sort of thing or the data is only available years later and what we found as we started working more and more closely on this and talking to more and more people who were closer to the to the ground um, was that um, more in recent times in fact there there is a, a real-time monitoring effort in five Chinese provinces so we were actually able to obtain um, very good high high quality granular data for coal emissions in some of these places um, which was brilliant because we could then calibrate the predictions we'd made for china uh, in those in those regions but then of course it it to some extent um, reduced the need for the methodology we'd we'd developed <laughs> so uh, so we were sort of you know happy happy pleased and 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 uh, frustrated at the same time with that but then of course that was only for five regions it was only a, a uh, it's only mandatory in, in certain places. So for other places, of course, we can still use our, our methodology and be even uh, even more certain or, or confident in the, in the results that it gave us. Did you find that the models that you created translated well from one region of the world to another or did they not? Um, yeah, we, we, we did. Uh, and I think the, but the, the the interesting variation, in fact, was to do with the the ground state of of the plants. Oh, and yeah, here's another good challenge that I that I'd forgotten about, or maybe my mind had tried to to push it down into my subconscious <laughs> because it was so uh, so annoying. Um, so just to just to make it very clear about how we were trying to do this, we were looking at the visual plumes, the the, the smoke, the water vapor um, that come out of the flue stack uh, and the cooling towers from uh, from a coal plant. And uh, we were testing and sort of subsetting on various sort of samples uh, to try and improve our results. And I forget how exactly we stumbled upon it, but it, but it, as soon as we did, it became so obvious that there are there are various kinds of cooling technologies that, that coal plants have. Um, there's what's called once through, which is if it, the plant is located near a body of water, it'll it'll suck in water from say a, a lake or, or a river, um, use that to to, to cool its uh, its equipment and then pass it out um, a slightly warm warm stream of water. Uh, and there's also active and and passive cooling towers, which is draft cooling towers, where ev evaporation is used and produces these huge steam clouds. Um, now those two cooling 
types, uh, you know, produce very different uh, cooling plumes. And the once through method, um, in fact, did not behave very well uh, in our models at all. So once we were able to slice that out and only examine plants with active and natural um, draft cooling, um, we saw much better results. So that was that was a real um, a sort of step change um, that we that perhaps if we had had a deeper understanding of the, the physical characteristics of coal plants at the beginning, we could have seen coming. As it happened, we were able to infer it by looking at the results as, as we went along. Mm. It also strikes me that, uh, for example, uh, wind would make a big difference. If there's no wind, you're going to have this plume that kind of goes straight up and, and doesn't spread horizontally yeah. in your image. But if it's very windy, it'll kind of uh dispersing you know one direction and your model would need to be able to uh figure that out to perform yeah, well absolutely we did do a reasonable amount of investigation against environmental data um and what really enabled us to do this was google earth engine um which had a lot of uh, environmental uh, data layers um, that we could just just bring in very easily. Um, it would have been much more difficult if we weren't using Google Earth Engine, I must say. Um, though other platforms offer similar things, but we were able to so, so we were able to use that to get um, per image uh, a a wind speed, a wind direction, uh, temperature, um, atmospheric pressure and humidity. Um, and so we did some we did some analysis against all of those variables to see if there was significant correlation with plume size. And with wind, we did find if, if the wind isn't blowing, the plume goes straight up and doesn't disperse so much, which when you're looking over vertically and some satellites, in fact, do offer um, an angle offset so that you can try and do volumetric estimations. Hmm. That was something that we left on the side and, and, and didn't end up trying to investigate. That was sort of beyond, beyond the, the, the amount of time we had. But um, so if, if the wind is very low, you get the straight up plume. If the wind is going somewhat, you get more of a dispersal. And if it's very strong wind, then you get more of a, a straight line. So actually the plume uh, area looking from above isn't as, as great as sort of medium wind. But overall, we didn't find that the, that it was hugely significant. Um, same with same with the other estimates, because we hoped that uh, by bringing those variables into the model, we would able to get a really good um, accuracy. But they, they didn't actually help as as much as we had hoped, um, unfortunately. Uh, and I think that was that was when I talked about the scoping. I mean, um, we didn't know how hard this this problem was. Uh, I think is is the the real truth of the matter. And <laughs> and when you um, when you just look at the the noise and the variation of um, generation output compared to the the plumes emitted by a, by a plant you just find that there's a there's a there's a huge variation it's just very noisy to start with and so the accuracy of 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 what we could end up with was always going to be limited by that natural variation um whereas if, if for example we were just trying to quantify uh what kind of equipment or what kind of cooling technologies or say we were doing something different and just looking at you know whether solar panels are built in a certain area, static stuff that, you know, it, rather than time series data. Um, that's a lot more, I think you can get a much finer degree of accuracy than uh, than trying to get something dynamic like this. Right, but, right. So, so we, we lived and learned. <laughs> um, and so the availability of these image chips helped quite a bit, uh, but did, did that totally alleviate the 
data preparation challenges or did you have other areas where data prep was really a, a, a big challenge for you? Gluing everything together at the beginning uh, was was some 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 challenge, but but beyond that, I mean that just the amount of cloud architecture and and cloud solutions that are being offered um, really does a lot of the work for you. And uh, for example, um, AWS now hosts uh, a lot of archived uh, satellite image data sets um, that anyone can access. Um, which we investigated. We didn't end up using. A lot of these satellite image providers now have their own platforms, um, and they really try and take as much out of your hands as possible so you can really get to the implementation phase as, as quickly as possible. And it's, 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 uh, it's entirely possible to do extremely rapid prototyping um, now with, with new kinds of image classifiers on, on satellite data, um, whether that's through Google Earth Engine, which you can just pull in all sorts of different sources or through one of these, mostly I must say they're proprietary, but a lot of them have sort of quite low barriers, especially for academic institutions. And a lot of them have not-profit elements as well. Um, of course, they have huge fixed costs because they put satellites into the into the air and they need to make a, a return on it. But you know they are they are very keen uh, for people to to try new things and to well they hope make commercialisable um, solutions. Uh, and I know for, for example, Planet has a had a Kaggle challenge a while ago about classifying um, bits of the Amazon rainforest to try and try and get people working on these these different challenges. Uh, and I know that there's a there's a huge amount being done across the sort of NGO and uh, energy climate change space on, on all sorts of things around water, around coal mining, forest cover, afforestation, all, all those sorts of questions, which can, as I say, I mean, we are a carbon tracker. It's uh, and people that work with this project, it was only sort of maybe three of us. Um, and the fact that, you know, we could uh, we could even pull together a sort of a machine learning project with, with satellite images, I think, says a lot about um how quickly you can get up and running with modern tooling. For the classifier that was looking to predict the status of the plants, what model did you use? You said it was a visual classifier, so it was yeah, like we, a CNN? We, yeah, exactly. It was a, a CNN. We used Inception V3. Um, and we, I mean, we just we just wanted a, 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 an image processing model that, you know, that, that knew edges and, and knew its way around an image. I, we ended up stripping off some of the some of the last final layers um and i think we added a we added a dense layer um but you know we didn't but we didn't have to do a huge amount of of tweaking um maybe maybe we should have done but uh, <laughs> but, but we didn't we, that was that was what we ended up doing and and it, and it and it worked worked pretty well pretty okay i would say you were evaluating your model performance based on Again, this kind of these known U.S. and Europe uh, plants, or did you yes. end up with something different? No, we 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 just we just used the label, label data for the U.S. And, and the EU, and later when we we found out about this source in China, we were able to do some do some training using the the labeled China data as well. Um, and so we just looked at precision and and recall uh, for the for the plants that were on, and then and the plants that were off. And again, because of this very imbalanced data set that most of the images were of plants with some sort of smoke vapor plume um we had very good accuracy uh, or very good precision for um for plants that were on and then much worse in fact for for, for plants that were were off um which dragged dragged the accuracy down overall which is um but, but understandable with 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 a, with a very balanced training set 
out of curiosity, what what's the typical kind of cycle time for uh, these plants being on or off? Are they cycling, you know, several times a day or is it, you know, they're cycling for, you know, days or weeks mm-hmm. on end? So um, there's a there is a there's a cost uh, if you're a coal plant operator to to go down to zero is if you if you have to start up against what's called a cold start uh, and it's much easier to just lower your output. So plants are sort of ramping their outputs up and down quite a lot, um, but then they might turn off for you know a, a period of days. But most of the, most of the time, it's more more useful for them to to try and keep running uh, as much as possible and to to keep keep some inertia going. Um, and for the classifier's point of view, that isn't very helpful because it's just saying, oh, it's still on, it's still on. Um, and that was why the results that we got were initially we thought we could do have a really fine grained time series and be able to see, you know, every day or every time we got an image, whether it's on or off and, and draw a very nice time series chart. And what we ended up deciding was that we could get reasonable accuracy over a time period um, because we could we could take these averages, um, but we weren't able to get you know to say in this week what's happening. Um, that was just a, a limitation that we found. Though as plants uh, in in some areas, I know in the UK where the economic conditions are much more competitive for coal and they're really struggling, they they are trying to innovate, uh, which does mean cycling more often because they'll be trying to hit, make sure that they hit the, the spikes in power prices um, and then just sort of lay low the rest of the time. So, I mean, I, in theory, yeah, or, or I mean, running these, these, these models, hopefully we'll be able to identify some of these changing operating characteristics, or I mean, certainly spotting plant downtimes and things would be something that we would, we would love to do in terms of just setting this running and then automatically flagging when, when things are changing. Mm-hmm. And did you define off with regard to some kind of threshold to account for this, uh, you know, cycling down very low or was it hard off was the only off that you were considering? It's a good question because we, we came up with two things there, whether the the, the pixel count would, would give a value at all, i.e. But, the, but then there was there was sort of generic noise in the images. And, w- and when you said before about uh, how did the algorithm fare in different regions of the world, of course, the image is um, a square around the power plant. So it, it is getting some of the landscape. Of course, the landscape is differs, differing all around the world. And we didn't know to what extent um, the CNN would pick up various bits of this this, this this landscape and other parts of the the coal plant and uh, and and try and include those um, and including of course there's some sited on rivers and on coastal regions and things so we really wanted to try and delve into it to ensure that that wasn't happening and it would be repeatable um, and so even even when it was off there was a, a, a base level of, uh, of of reflectivity so. Um, so in short, yes, there was there was some sort of threshold. <laughs> and so that's the classifier on the regressor side. Was that did you use the same sources, NSOE and and EPA for your training data or for your labels, or did that come from someplace else? No, we we we, we did. We, I mean, we started off with the regressor, and we did try to use the exact same training data. Um, but we found that it just wouldn't it wouldn't converge, um, which was which was very frustrating. So we switched we switched that pretty quickly, um, and we just thought this isn't going to this isn't going to produce good results. 
you didn't get anywhere with the regressor at all, or you switched to a different approach? Yeah, we 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 just we we just switched out and uh, and and said let's let's just do this um, with a with a pixel counting method, basically. Ah, got and, it, uh, got yeah. it. So, yeah, yeah. so this wasn't a machine learning. There was no training data. It was just counting the pixels it, and kind it, of exactly. correlating that to uh, an output based on you know understanding of the you know the, the underlying principles. Precisely, precisely, and. Um, you know, so of course, you know, we, we we like to use love to use machine learning where we can, but in this case, we just thought, okay, we just need to get a, we just need to get some number outputs here, and uh, and the simplest way looks to be best. I mean, of course, a, a huge challenge in terms of doing the pixel counting is that you know a, a, a white pixel and a smoke plume for a plant looks indistinguishable from from cloud cover, um, though there is some some stuff about sort of height and uh, and sun reflectance and those sorts of things, but. Um, essentially for various parts of the world and in Southeast Asia, certainly very difficult. You're never going to get uh, optical images frequently enough that, that, that aren't obscured by clouds. Um, the reason by you could set uh, a limit like 10%, that doesn't mean that there's 10% clouds evenly distributed. It means in a in an image, a large image tile, there will be some clouds somewhere. And so you just hope that that doesn't intersect with the area of interest you're trying to look at. And most of the time it didn't, but some of the time it did. So that was another source of, of error. Um, with with cloud cover, and there are some sensors um, that are less affected by this. Um, there's a, a whole lot of sensors, including from the European Space Agency's Copernicus platform that, that look at our ozone, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide. And there's also some radar, uh, short uh, synthetic aperture radar that, that will pick up on metals. And that's very good for looking about where things are being built or if there's industrial operations happening. And I know there's some some very exciting analytics companies that are, that are using that approach to um, regularly check on uh, on industrial applications or economic activity um, automatically so they, they they their algorithms will just run every day and say uh, you know here's here's what we think the economic activity in this sector is based on this uh, this radar data how long did you spend on this project all told um, I think we, we we got the data at around Christmas last year that's when I was writing the um, the scripts to get the first training set and it took us i mean we did other projects in the interim so it probably took us about uh half half two of our time for about nine months something okay. like that maybe maybe a little more than that actually okay. i shouldn't i shouldn't really undersell the amount of effort it does but um <laughs> it was it, uh it you know it does no one any favors to do that and it was really to fill in the gaps in a, in a, a global coal economics platform that we've just been developing we're going to launch um we're launching just at the start of, of December, um, which is going to showcase the cost and the profitability for every coal plant worldwide, uh, as well as contrast it when renewables are going to be cheaper, uh, or it'll be cheaper to build new renewables than to even run existing coal plants. So that's the, the data we wanted to make available. And, and that was why we were doing this project, such that we could fill in the gaps of places that we, we really couldn't find any data at all. Um, so this project did feed into that portal um, for China, um, but over the year we also tried to develop a lot of local partners, and so it turned out that, that, that talking to people and getting getting local expertise in all parts of the world was also a very very useful <laughs> way as well. And that's is that machine learning? I, I don't know. Right. The human machine at work. Uh, interesting, interesting. Um, and so, are these models? Are they 
kind of in a ongoing production production state uh, feeding into this portal or have you um, did you kind of do a survey and then collect the data and then uh, is the the portal presenting more static data yeah it's our, our aim is to, to update it every every three months um, while I had the ambition that I would sort of productionize everything and, and just keep all the scripts running Um mm-hmm. We didn't ultimately didn't have the the, the need to do that. Um, you know, we're we're a not for profit, so we're not selling. A, we don't have customers in that in that sense. So it never seemed like it was it was um, it was really necessary to do that. However, um, because there is it is really interesting for a lot of different groups to have this information, and this is where uh, in the the not profit sector. Um, you know, it's 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 very hard to get these sort of partnerships set up where someone builds it and everyone else uses it. But uh, but I I have some hopes that 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 will happen. And there is a lot of very exciting uh, information sharing and, and technical methodology sharing um, across these these different sort of technologies around the energy transition. And it's 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 only going to improve over time. So so hopefully um our our work will will be a part of that in some way. Uh, it strikes me that this is, you know, just one really interesting use case uh, around how machine learning, AI, data science can be applied in the sphere of uh, climate change, climate change policy. Uh, are there others that jump out for you? Yeah, well, a- absolutely. I mean, um, the 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 Paris Climate Agreement and the international agreements. One big part of that is about countries' inventories and uh, and holding every every signatory to those agreements to to account in terms of what they say they're going to be doing. Um, and and that means uh, and that's a whole industry in terms of monitoring compliance, monitoring CO two emissions. Because what falls out straight away just just on our coal work is. If you know how often the plants are running and you know some other characteristics, you can estimate how much CO2 is, is being emitted. Um, and there's a lot of satellites now that have that are just for CO2 monitoring as well as other air pollutants. So using 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 AI, um, you can and, and and data science, you can run automated um algorithms to just continuously uh, measure these things. And again, a lot of this data is is available um it's just a question of gluing it all together so i do see a, a future where uh, everyone or civil society is able to to keep tabs on um all large polluters and and nation states to say you know are you really doing the, are you staying true to the commitments you've made on on climate um is this large polluter uh staying true to its commitments to uh run its air pollution scrubbers or is it in fact you know just just pumping out pollution into the atmosphere um, and thinking it can get away with it. So I see that really starting to change in, in real time. Um, and the other part of it is making arguments about the speed of growth of, of the positive side of the, the speed of uptake of renewables, of solar deployment, and also smarter uh, predictive capabilities in terms of power systems. So being able to uh, more accurately predict uh, solar and wind output, um, shifting demand uh, and smart grids, so smoothing out the peaks in energy demand, um, which reduces the system cost for everyone and, and further erodes the case for, for fossil fuels. Um, so, uh, and of course, I, I, I mainly look at the power sector, but there's, you know, power also has a water stress and water impacts, which is, which is extremely important. That's something that can very easily be seen and changes over time can very easily be seen um, from space or in automated ways. Uh, deforestation can, can now be tracked again in, in sort of near real time. 
Um, so yeah, a, a huge amount of applications, and I think um, the the more the more people that that we in the nonprofit sector can sort of mobilise to to work on those, the more data scientists we can we can attract to to come and work on those projects, the better able we'll be to to address them. Lawrence, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really enjoyed it. Great, Sam. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.